It was a gorgeous July morning, blue skies, 70 degrees, and I was hiking up the Rock Canyon Trail. Behind me, the sun was just starting to light up the BYU campus, where I planned to spend most of my day doing podcast interviews and meeting with the Y Magazine team. Ahead of me up the trail were the massive knobby brown crags I know so well from the hours I spent climbing here as a student 20-something years ago. Giddy with nostalgia and excited to get my fingers back on those rocks, I pointed out to my son some of the routes I'd mastered back in the day, even the spot where I climbed to the top of a route and came face-to-face with a mountain goat. Today was going to be a quick and easy climb with my 15-year-old son, Miles, five of his cousins, and my brother and sister. We planned to set up some beginner routes right on the main trail, give all the kids one or two climbs, and then hike back. Little did I know there would be nothing quick or easy about this climbing trip. Welcome to the Y Magazine Podcast, bringing you ideas, stories, and voices from Brigham Young University. I'm Whitney Archibald, and today's episode is going to be a little different because I'm telling my own story about a rock climbing accident I had this summer. This story will also be featured in the Winter 2024 issue of Y Magazine. But first, I realize that even though I've been telling you my name for the past 15 episodes, I haven't properly introduced myself. How rude. I attended BYU from 1997 to 2001 and graduated with an English degree. I was so sad to graduate. For one, it meant I had to leave my internship at Y Magazine, which I loved, but also there were just so many more classes I wanted to take. I felt like I'd only scratched the surface. Fast forward to 2023, and I'm back at Y Magazine producing this podcast, so I get to keep learning and meeting interesting people, and best of all, share it with you. I now live in Colorado with my husband, David Archibald, whom I met and married while at BYU, and my five kids, ages 8 to 18. If you've been enjoying this podcast as much as we enjoy making it, we'd love for you to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and tell your friends and family about it. We'd also really appreciate your feedback in a listener survey so we can make more of the kind of episodes you like best. Okay, back to my story. Once we hiked to the spot where we would be climbing, a little alcove called The Kitchen, my son Miles and I hiked up with our gear to set up. This had always been a dream of mine, literally showing my kids the ropes. Even when I was a teenager learning to climb in my hometown, Bishop, California, I imagined teaching my own kids to climb. It's such a great way to spend time together in beautiful places, doing hard things, and cheering each other on. It's also the ultimate cooperative sport. You have to rely on each other completely, which was exactly the lecture I was about to give my son. Again. Although he had helped me set up top ropes before, I gave him my full, overly cautious speech. Every part of the anchor has to be redundant, with two points of contact to the rock, double knots, double carabiners, and two people checking that everything is set up right. And don't forget to narrate your steps out loud so you make sure you remember them all. We checked and double-checked our anchors, fed the ropes through, and got ready to rappel down to our family below. But first, one more lecture. Now you have to make sure that both ends of your rope reach the ground. This is one of the most common ways climbers get seriously injured, short roping themselves. And so we did. We verified with my sister Haley Kirkland, also a BYU alum, and currently a vocal jazz instructor at BYU, that both sides of the rope were down and lowered ourselves safely to the ground. Once down, though, I didn't like the way my rope was rubbing over the edge of the rock wall. To err on the side of caution, I decided to reset the rope to a different set of anchors. Miles belayed me while I climbed up the route. It was a fun one. Easy enough for beginners, but with a few complicated spots to figure out. I clambered over the top, tethered myself above for extra safety, and then started setting up the rope on the new anchors. Again, I checked with the ground crew that both ends of the rope were on the ground. 
At that point, I told Miles to go ahead and start belaying my nephew while he climbed the other route. That's when I realized I had forgotten my rappel device. I asked my brother, Brett Singley, who also graduated from BYU, to tie my device to the end of the rope and send it up to me. I pulled it up, set it up, made sure I was secure, and undid my tether. I just forgot one step, the most important step, the one I had just lectured Miles about. I didn't lower the end of the rope back to the ground after receiving my device. I had lowered it enough that I could see it go over the edge so everything looked fine. But since I had already lowered the rope once, I had mentally checked it off my list and did not do it a second time. I dropped over the edge and started lowering myself. And then I ran out of rope. Just like that, I was lying flat on my back at the bottom of the cliff, a freefall of 30 feet. I immediately knew what I'd done wrong, and the first thing I said to myself was, I can't believe I short-roped myself. I'm the safest, most overly cautious climber I know. Unbelievable. My next thought was to assess the damage. I wiggled my toes. Check. I wiggled my fingers. Check. I checked in with my head. I couldn't believe it. No pain. Not the slightest headache. My thoughts were crystal clear, and I felt surprisingly calm. The rest of my body, especially my back and pelvis, was on fire. If childbirth is a 10, this was at least 15, if not 20. My next priority was breathing. Obviously, the wind was knocked out of me after a fall like that, something that I don't know if I've felt since playing on the monkey bars as a kid. As soon as I caught a breath, I tried to talk to let my family know I was okay, or at least kind of okay. The first thing I said, or rather croaked, was, Idiot. I'm such an idiot. I couldn't believe I had done this. How many people had I lectured about avoiding this very mistake? That's when I received the first of the many lessons the Lord would bless me with that day. As soon as I started beating myself up for my oversight, I heard the distinct words in my mind, You are human, and humans make mistakes. It was an accident. I wasn't a careless climber. I was a careful climber who made a mistake. Immediately the shame went away. I forgave myself. From that point until I got to the hospital, I felt like I had a direct line of communication with the Lord, almost like my mind and body were disconnected, the Lord occupying my mind in a distinct two-way conversation, comforting me so I could withstand the pain. Brett patted my sides to check for bleeding and then called 911. Meanwhile, Haley had run down the path to try and get better reception for her 911 call. She ran back when she got a prompting to check on my brother— who by now was lying on the ground perpendicular to me so he wouldn't pass out after seeing the gruesome compound fracture in my wrist. I let them both know I wasn't paralyzed and didn't have head trauma. I didn't realize just how much of a miracle that was until I saw the picture later. Haley took a picture while we were waiting for the ambulance, partly to document it for my husband, who was back home in Colorado, and also in case the doctors wanted to see how I landed. Even though it's pretty hard to look at, I'm so glad she did. It shows that I basically landed in a Whitney-shaped clearing with rocks all around me. Inches to the right or inches higher, and I surely would have hit my head on a rock. It seems just by the law of physics that my head would have hit hard as well with probably a whiplash to boot, but not a bump or a scratch. The only way I can explain this is with a scripture from Psalms 91:11 through 12 For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways, They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. I was also surprised that my thoughts were so clear and vivid the whole time. 
I didn't even come close to losing consciousness. I listened to Brett talk to the 911 operator and answered his questions. I heard Miles assure his younger cousins that I'd be okay as he gathered them to the side so they wouldn't see my frightening wrist. Then he hiked up to get our gear and packed it all up. I was so proud of him for taking care of all of that in such a traumatic situation. Breathing was still difficult, but I tried to joke around a little to reassure everyone else that I was going to be okay. Like, well, at least my mosquito bites aren't bothering me anymore. But I still wasn't so sure I would be okay. I told the Lord that if I wasn't going to make it, I really had tried my best. But I didn't want to go now. I wanted to be here to raise my kids, grow old with my husband. Interestingly, my mind didn't go to the big moments like graduations and weddings, but the little ones, like bedtime reading sessions, family walks, and late-night conversations. The Lord doesn't always let us see how things will turn out up front. Maybe not even usually, but this time He did. Immediately, He let me know not only that I was going to live, but that I was going to fully recover. That was the greatest and most unexpected gift He could have given me at that time, and I instantly knew it was true. The pain was still very much there, but without the added burden of fear and uncertainty, I knew I could endure this extreme physical pain. As we waited the 12 minutes for the paramedics to arrive, I had Haley cancel my appointments on campus. I apologized that we'd all have to miss the bucket list concert we'd planned to go to that night, Nickel Creek, and I let my mind move forward through my calendar. I was supposed to drive my kids back to Colorado the very next day. In exactly one week, my husband and I were supposed to be on a flight to Europe with our oldest son for the senior trip we'd been planning for over a year. Again, the Spirit intervened. Obviously, no one would mind the canceled appointments. There would be other awesome concerts. I may miss this trip with our son, but Europe will still be there when I'm better. All I could feel was gratitude that I still got to be a mother to my kids, a wife to my husband, a daughter, sister, friend to all the people I loved. My story had almost ended, so I wasn't focused on what I would miss, but what I still got to do. By that time, a team of four paramedics arrived on an ATV. They cut the laces of my climbing shoes and tried to carefully pull my harness off, but that was excruciating, and I told them to just cut it off. They loaded me up on a backboard, balanced me on the back of the ATV, and walked along behind to hold me securely as we drove down the trail, only about 100 yards to the waiting ambulance. Because my blood pressure was so low, they couldn't give me any pain medication until I arrived at the hospital, so it was an agonizing ride. Again, the Lord spoke to me word for word. Not everyone gets to feel this much physical pain all at once and live. The words gets to caught me off guard, and I knew it was deliberate. Weirdly, I could now see this trial as an opportunity rather than a loss. I've had enough trials in my life to know that this perspective usually comes after the trial— you look back after it's passed and see how much you've learned and grown. But this time, the Lord gave me this gift of perspective right up front. I knew this accident would be transformative for me. For one, I had never felt such a direct connection with the Spirit. I also knew that the long recovery would help me stretch and grow. The Lord promised me that my family would become stronger and grow closer together, and that my children would become more responsible and resilient. I had already seen Miles step up and take charge during the accident. Even more specifically, I knew that this experience would have more of an impact on my oldest son than a trip to Europe. I also suddenly understood more about the Savior and His suffering than I ever had before. I had a new comprehension and appreciation for what He felt. What kind of pain was physically possible?
But it also hit home that he chose to feel this pain voluntarily, plus emotional and mental anguish on top of it. In the ambulance, paramedics were stroking my face, helping me breathe, and comforting me in any way possible. From the minute the paramedics had pulled up on the ATV, I could just feel and almost see love radiating from them. It was a tangible force. They didn't know me at all. Yet every ounce of their energy was focused on getting me safely to the hospital and making me as comfortable as possible. In turn, I felt so much love and gratitude for them. And I felt love pouring in from the Spirit as well. Again, I heard distinct words teaching me, This is the pure love of Christ. I knew at that moment that this was the essence of the gospel, the priority with a capital P. Again, I noticed the discrepancy of how well my mind worked while my body was so broken. I felt like just a sack of broken bones. Another scriptural phrase came to my mind. I knew this was the beginning of a stage in my life where it was my turn not to act, but to be acted upon. I would have to be patient and humble and let others serve me. It was a strange identity shift to know that I was going from caregiver to care recipient. An MRI soon after I arrived at the hospital revealed the extent of my injuries. Along with my broken wrist, my sacrum had snapped and shattered. My pelvis had cracked in three places, and the impact had knocked it askew. I also had burst fractures in three vertebrae, a broken sternum and some broken ribs, a partially collapsed lung, and some internal bleeding. I spent the next three and a half weeks in the hospital, a blur of surgeries, physical therapy, and an outpouring of support, prayer, and visits from family and friends. I actually even interviewed BYU basketball coach Mark Pope from my hospital bed for the podcast episode about BYU joining the Big 12. It seems so crazy now, but it felt so good to do something that felt like part of my normal life. One of the weirdest things about recovery was going through all the stages of development again. I went from being completely helpless like a newborn, it took three people to roll me over, to learning how to roll over, sit up, feed myself, all the things. Eventually, I reached the toddler stage where I kept saying, I can do it myself. But then I'd make a mess of things and have to ask for help. By the time I left the hospital, I could get myself to a sitting position and use a slide board to get myself into a wheelchair. After the hospital, I recovered for six more weeks at my parents' house in Heber, Utah, before regaining enough strength to travel home to Colorado and reunite with my husband and kids. By the time I left my parents' house, I felt like I was leaving for college again, excited but nervous about going out on my own. Since then, rehab hasn't been easy. I was in a wheelchair for three months, and I've gradually been gaining strength through a regimen of three to four hours of physical therapy each day. But I can walk, and I can read those bedtime stories to my kids. Even things like driving my kids to school for the first time after the accident was a momentous occasion. I wiped happy tears from my face as I pulled away from the parking lot. Throughout the process, I've learned so many lessons about service, empathy, compassion, and definitely patience, and I still have lots of learning to do. My doctors expect a full or at least mostly full recovery by a year after the accident. As promised, my family has really become more connected, and my husband and kids have really stepped up to help me. Friends and neighbors welcomed me home, brought us food, took me to doctor's appointments, and took my arm for my first walks around the block. Now I find myself on the verge of a new stage, figuring out what this next post-fall version of my life will look like now that I'm getting more mobile and capable. How will I choose to spend my time that now feels so precious? What places do I want to explore? What books do I want to read? What podcasts do I want to make? How will I show up for my family and friends? And most importantly, 
How will I share and exemplify the love of Christ that I so clearly felt on that day that changed my life? Thank you for listening to the Y Magazine podcast. In the next episode, I'm excited to bring you tips for studying the Book of Mormon for our new year of Come Follow Me from two fascinating Book of Mormon professors, Joseph Spencer and Daniel Belknap. This week's episode was based on the article Lessons from the Fall in the Winter 2024 issue of Y Magazine. The Y Magazine podcast is produced by me, Whitney Archibald, with executive producer Dunya Palmer. Sound design and original music by Jarrett Davis.